No, actually, I'm really excited. I'm really genuinely excited about the topic that I feel like um, where where I landed this time. And um, it's something that I think every every time I teach, I really walk away feeling like I probably, you know, um, needed to hear it more than anybody else or at least, you know, learned a lot, a good bit in just studying it. So um, you can, you can, um, I'm going to spend some time just setting the stage, all right? Um, If you you look in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 14, David is talking to his son Solomon, who's just getting ready to step into the throne. And so, um, um, and David is, is detailing to Solomon the plans that he's made to build a house for God to live in. And as part of these plans, he tells Solomon, I have prepared a hundred thousand um, um, talents of gold and a million talents of silver. And I've got these all set aside. They're ready for you to go build a house for God to live in. Now, a talent, if we take the most conservative position possible, is about 75 pounds, which means that David had seven and a half million pounds of gold set aside for the building of God's house. That's 3,750 tons. Gold today sells for $1,591 in U.S. dollars per ounce, which means that in today's dollars, the cost of the gold and the silver was well over $250 trillion in today in U.S. dollars. $250 trillion. Our national debt, I think, is $20 trillion, just to give you some context. That was always a big number to me. If you took $250 trillion in $100 bills and you put them end-to-end and stretched them around the center of the earth at the equator... That chain of $100 bills would stretch around the center of the earth at the equator 60,000 times. And it would make a wall of $100 bills at the equator 21 feet tall. So that gives you some context of the kind of money in U.S. dollars that David thought it would take to build a house worthy for God to live in. And I think, you know, we often drive by a house right now. We drive, you drive by a house and you look at the house and you see a 30,000 square foot mansion. And you think, man, what, who lives there? You know, what, 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 they, you know, what prominent figure lives there? Uh, you know, they must really be something. David really thought God was something. And David had such a high opinion of God and his view of God's majesty was so impressive that that's the kind of house that he thought it would take to, to, to provide a place worthy for God to put his name on. Um, um, in fact, you know, when, when, you know, there's so, there were so many wars where people came in and devastated this temple, and each time they came in, it always details that they carried out gold. You can see why Jerusalem was such a target for a foreign army. I mean, can you imagine... Ima- I mean, there, the, I don't know historically, but I could imagine that there was likely no other comparable buildings like this in the world at that time. And again, I don't know that as a fact, but it had to be at least at the top. Um, so um, this, this, and when, when um, 
forget which king came in and, and burned the temple after they had, had stripped most of the gold. But the gold got so hot, it melted down into the rocks. If you go there, supposedly, I haven't seen it, but you can still find, you know, see where the gold melted down into cracks in the rock at the, on the Temple Mount. A, a massive amount of gold was used in the construction of the temple. Um, I feel the reason I share that is because I'm trying to set a context for the greatness of God. I feel like often in our Western mindset, we lose the idea of just God's greatness. We call Jesus God, and we just, it just kind of rolls off our lips, and we forget that this was the God of the universe. And it, was the, it was the God that David thought would take $200 trillion to properly honor on earth. And here came Jesus stepping out of heaven, knowing who he was, knowing what he was here for, knowing where he was going, and, 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 and he came you know, and walked on the same, the, same, the same earth that we walk on. Um, so when we talk about Jesus being God, that is the God we're talking about. Um, can everybody see this? Can you see this? This is my favorite painting. Now, this isn't an art show, um, and I'm sure if I show you this painting, you know what I'm going to teach on. I love this painting. I remember, I'll never forget the day I saw this painting hanging in a Christian bookstore, and my wife then, then um, um, bought it for me for my birthday. Um, it's my favorite painting, and I've, I think that one of the reasons I like it is because that story of Jesus washing feet was always such a... It, to me, it just—it was such an amazing object lesson of Jesus just getting down the lowest level he could, he could, and doing the lowest thing that he could for the people that he loved the most. Um, so we're going to talk. So you can you can open your Bible if you want to to John chapter 13. Um, we're going to talk about, I, I, but I, I need to finish setting the stage first. Um, zooming into this actual act of foot washing, what was it for? You know the context. Um, Genesis described there's four different separate occasions in the book of Genesis where um, people, visitors were offered feet, uh, offered water to wash their feet as an act of hospitality. Um, but it was never where the person in position or of, of posi- the person in authority or the person in power was actually washing the feet of somebody else. They were just making it available. It was an act of hospitality to withhold the washing of feet was just rude. Um, um, in fact, I read somewhere, and I don't remember where it was, that, that, that it was always the lowest slave or servant of the house that would do the washing of feet. In fact, if you had Jewish slaves, not even the Jewish slaves would wash feet. It had to be one of the Gentile slaves or servants. Um, I don't know that that's true, absolutely, but that was something I read about, about this. Um, when when um, Abigail came to David, she, after um, David... Um, um, after Abigail became David's wife, um, she told David, let me, be, um, let me be your servant to wash the feet of your servants. 
She was simply describing the lowest, let me do, just do the lowest thing I can possibly do in your house because I'm unworthy to be there. So she was just, she was, that was the, the, the lowest thing that, that was on the totem pole that, that she could, she could, um, uh, that, that she could think to do. Now, we might think of something else. Like, you know, I, we wouldn't necessarily think of somebody who offered to wash our feet that that was such an act of extreme servitude. Um, um, in, in, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus reprimands Simon the Pharisee not because he failed to wash his feet, but because Simon failed to make water available so that Jesus could wash his own feet. Um, and so you can see, you know, you can see that even in first century, it was still common practice for people to make water available to wash their feet. Um, now, we, um, we, you know, we forget a lot of times what, what it was like. You know, if you're walking down a first century street, it's, it's not nice asphalt. It's dust, and, it's, and you're walking down the stra- same street that camels walk down and that donkeys walk down, and as a result, your feet get really dirty. Sandals don't necessarily protect your feet like big rubber boots do. Um, so the streets were dusty, thus necessitating, a frequent, uh, necess- necessitating the frequent um, f- washing of feet as both an act of sanitation and just comfort. It just felt good after a long journey just to be able to scrub the dirt off your feet. So, um, for some of us, the significance, I think, of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, for some of us, the significance of that has been lost just in, in history. We don't think about what it was like. And for others, it's been lost in just religious formality, because it's just, it, we've experienced it as, as um, you know, just something that we do from a religious standpoint, and we've not really entertained the real power of what Jesus did the night in the upper room before his death, as he stooped, put on a, 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 a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. The title of the message today is called The God with the Towel. The God with the Towel. And what I want to demonstrate is that Jesus used foot washing as an extremely powerful object lesson. And I, I hope that, um, I, I really hope that we can, we can, we, we probably can't do it justice, but I hope that we can connect a little bit with some of the emotion that Jesus had and his disciples had that night in the upper room. To, to, to further set the context and the stage for what Jesus did, I think we have to look at Luke chapter 22. And you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 24. It says, and the context of this is the upper room. If you look at the if you look at the preceding verses, you'll find that Jesus is in the is in the upper room, and he they are presently, um, you know, in the middle of their Passover meal, what we call communion. So that's that's the context of this. Um, um, that's where where they're at. And it says immediately after supper, it says a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. 
it's easy for us to forget that less than 24 hours before the upper room story, the disciples were on a journey into Jerusalem. Jesus was on, riding on the back of a colt, and they were surrounded by crowds of people saying, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they wanted to take Jesus and make him king. And in the disciples' minds, it was their time. This was what they were waiting for. Finally, Jesus is setting up his kingdom. They're going to take their place right inside. They're going to be, you know, the, 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 the key principles of this new kingdom. They're going to take over from the Jews. I'm, I'm sorry, from the Romans. The Romans are going to be evicted. And finally, we're going to reestablish God's reign on earth. And it's going to be amazing. And you, you've got to remember that this is, their, this is their frame of mind right now. They're sitting in this upper room celebrating the Passover, and they're making plans. They know what's coming, or they thought they did. Not one of them was thinking that in less than 24 hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested, and killed. It never crossed their minds. They were so oblivious. So looking at the book of John, almost, John dedicates almost 50% of the gospel of John to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. John has, I think, 22 chapters. From chapter 13 on, John dedicates to detailing the last 24 hours of John's life and the post-resurrection narrative. Um, John also devotes significant energy to addressing the fact that Jesus is God. He says... Um, just quoting some verses here from the book of John. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We, we've seen His glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He said, Before Abraham was, I am. And that wasn't a benign statement. It almost got him killed. Uh, chapter 9, verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the Son of God. Again, he nearly got killed for making that statement. I am the resurrection of the life and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I love the way that when you read the Gospel of John, um, you, you, there's no way to read the Gospel of John and walk away half-hearted. Like, you really have to read the Gospel of John, and you have to put Jesus in one of two categories. And it's the same one of two categories that most of the people that listen to Jesus put him in. They either said, he's crazy, or they said he's God. And it drives me crazy when I hear people say that Jesus was just a good man. He was a great prophet, but he wasn't God. And anybody who says that has never read the Gospel of John. You can't read the God, you have to read the Gospel of John and say that Jesus was either a madman or he was God. But he, John intentionally drives you to, you, you can't sit in the middle. You've got to end up in one of two camps. Um, all right, so that was a rabbit trail. There's another character that we dismiss in the upper room story, and that's a man named Judas. And what I, what I really came to realize as I studied this is that something that I've never thought about before, and that Judas was not a suspect. Nobody had any idea that Judas was a betrayer. I think that from the outside... Judas had it all together. He, was, he knew when to say yes. He knew the right words to say. He looked great on the outside. 
Nobody had any idea that Judas was a betrayer. And here's the reason I think that. I can't prove it, but here's the reason I think that. And that's because when Jesus said, one of you shall betray me, they immediately began questioning, wondering who it was. Judas did not immediately get the stink eye. They, if they would have known it was Judas, they would have kicked him out immediately. They had no idea it was going to be Judas. The other reason I think that, that Judas looked so good that nobody, and nobody suspected him is the fact that when, 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 when they said, all right, John, they, the disciples said, listen, John, you've got to ask Jesus who's going to be, who's going to be the betrayer. And what did Jesus do? He said, all right, I'll tell you who it's going to be. The person who, who, um, who eats, who, I'm going to dip my bread in the sop and give it to the person, and that person is going to be the betrayer. And, he did, and Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do. And what did his disciples do as a result of that? He, he, he dipped his, his bread in the, in the broth and he gave it to, to, to Judas. And, and, and then he said, Judas, what you do, do it quickly. And immediately the disciples said, oh, they, he must be making arrangements for the poor, whatever they say. I mean, they, they immediately assumed the most positive thing that they could about Judas. They didn't say, Judas, what are you doing? They didn't try to talk him out of it. They still believed, even in that moment, as, Judas get, as Jesus gave them an incredibly clear sign about who the betrayer was going to be, they still believed that Judas had it all together. There was no way that Judas was the betrayer of Jesus. And I think that's important. As, I think that that is, incredibly, that is an incredibly important detail as we look at Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And I'm going to explain why. All right. So now I'm going to read John chapter 13. I'm going to read down to verse 19. Now, um, you know, actually, I'm going to read to verse 11. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus... Knowing that, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who bathes does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. All right. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of um, attack some of the key phrases of this passage. Um, I think there's one phrase in particular that's problematic. Um, First verse, Jesus said, uh, verse 1, Jesus knows that the end has come. He's fully aware, he, he is fully aware of what's happening right now. 
And he's aware of the significance of the moment. Jesus knows that he's at the end of his life. And and in verse 2, he makes it clear that Judas has already started the betrayal plot. And Jesus is fully aware of this as well. Um, In verse 3, let me read verse 3. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. All right, let me pause there. John is building effect. And, and he, he's, he's illustrating this juxtaposition of, of Christ's power and divinity. And he's building you up to, all right, Jesus knows that he came from God. He knows he's going back to God. And, you know, and you would expect what come next, what to, you know, the, the, the next statement to be, so he, you know, he, he draws his disciples close for a last-minute strategy session. But that's not what he did. And John is intentionally highlighting. Jesus knows his divinity. He knows his power. He knows where he's going. He knows where he came from. And it says he rose from supper. He rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments. And he took a towel. And he tied it around his waist. Nobody ever thought that's what was coming after that statement. John is intentionally highlighting how crazy this statement is, that the God of the universe puts on a towel around his waist. It, Paul in Philippians 2.6 echoes this statement. He says, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. I believe that as Jesus did this, as he rose from the table from supper, and he got that towel and he tied it around his waist, I just picture him right there interrupting the disciples' argument about who is going to be greatest. Luke positions that argument right at the end of supper, and it's very clear here. Jesus is at the end of supper. He rises from the table, and he takes takes a towel and ties it around his waist interrupting the argument that is happening right now among his disciples about who's going to be greatest in his kingdom. I love that imagery. Um, verse 6, he, uh, uh, Jesus gets to Peter, and, and, and we all know that Peter's like, hey, you're not washing my feet. And, and, and it, we you know, love Peter. He's like, well, hey, if, if it takes washing my feet, then just wash everything. Um, and, and, but Jesus makes it clear that there's a meaning, there's a hidden meaning in him washing feet that they don't understand right now, but they are going to understand later. Jesus makes that clear. There's a meaning that's going to be revealed later. And, and, um, and he says in verse 8, and this is the, the verse that I think is, to me, is the most problematic of this passage. Um, and he, he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Um, and, and I'm going to come back to that passage, but verse 10 says, you are clean but not every one of you. Okay, so what does Jesus mean by saying that if I do not wash you, um, that you have no share with me? In, in John fifteen three, Jesus says, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Jesus is not now, in this foot washing service, he is not detailing an additional right that's required for the remission of Peter's sins. I don't believe that's what's happening. Um, so... If, if you remember, 
the, what the roads are like. They're, people have dirty feet. They get out of the shower. They immediately step out their front door, and they walk in a dirty street. So you have a clean body. You're clean, but you have dirty feet. And Jesus is saying that, and, and everybody knows that. Everybody knows that you have dirty feet. That's why you wash your feet everywhere you go. I believe that Jesus is highlighting the fact that just as you need to wash your feet to cleanse the dirt from your feet when you have a clean body. So in this assembly of people, this assembly, this, this upper room assembly is clean, but there's one person who is dirty. And, that, and he is making it clear that he is fully aware of the fact that he knows what's in Judas's heart. And what, what Peter is, is demonstrating towards his feet, Judas is demonstrating towards his soul. Does that make sense? So, so Jesus is leveraging this object lesson of Peter's objection to Jesus washing his feet to highlight what Judas is doing to his soul. Um, uh, uh, because Judas has not, uh, not rejected Jesus as being a foot washer. Judas has rejected Jesus from being a soul washer. So this... Uh, and and the, the, I, I believe that this passage is intended to highlight what Judas is doing. Je, this passage starts in Luke 13. Uh, the passage starts with Judas. Judas is the devil's already put it in Judas's heart, and it ends in verse 11 with Judas. This passage is intended to highlight Judas. I, I, I can't say that for a fact. It seems to me that it's intended. To highlight Judas. Um, when Jesus told Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He's making a point that he knows who his betrayer is. And, 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 and if, you, if you look at it that way, it makes so much sense why he immediately goes from talking about Jesus. I'm sorry, talking about Peter and his objection to Peter washing his um, to Jesus washing Peter's feet, he immediately goes from that to, and you are clean, but not all of you. He's intending to highlight the fact that I know that in this assembly is the one who is ultimately going to lead to my arrest. And he is telling them this so that after it all happens, his disciples can have full confidence as they look back on this time, they can have full confidence. Jesus knew the whole time. He knew exactly what was going on. This is the meaning that Jesus said afterward there's a meaning that's going to be revealed to you. They can look back at this moment and they can realize that, wow, Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart. And he washed his feet anyway. He knew what was going on. This did not take Jesus by surprise. In the in the in the next in uh, the 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 next verses in uh, um, Jesus said if you if you if I your Lord and teacher have washed your feet so you should wash wash each other's feet and as a result of that statement I think we we've all experienced foot washing presented as a Christian ordinance and, and I don't I don't want to I don't want to diminish in any way what 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 Scripture says. I do want to point out that John is the only gospel that mentions foot washing. And, and um, 
um, it's interesting that John does not also does not also um, talk about tell the communion story. It's like John is intending to bring out all the details that maybe the others didn't. So John is highlighting details that others maybe did not detail. Um, So I don't have a problem with a church leveraging foot washing, and I'm not saying that a church should not leverage foot washing as an object lesson to help us reconnect with Christ's first century teaching. And I've experienced powerful times of foot washing. You know, the, 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 the symbology is so real, and, I, and, 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 and it can be helpful. However, I think there are some problems with a modern foot washing service. And one is that it leads us to believe that Jesus was actually communicating that we need to wash each other's feet physically, like that that's satisfying what Jesus is doing. That's, that's one problem. The second one is that nobody comes to church with dirty feet. We all make sure that our feet are clean before we come and, and have our feet washed. And it doesn't make any sense. We're not, de- we're not demonstrating any humility in washing feet. Um, and the, the truth is that we could probably capture more of the emotion and the spirit of Jesus' teaching about foot washing if we visited somebody's house and offered to clean their toilets for them. That's, that would really be more of a demonstration of what Jesus is trying to illustrate. Or maybe we just... Clean the church urinals. I mean, that's, you know, thank you, Joy. That's, that's got to be somewhere on the, on the foot washing uh, 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 radar, too. Um, so so um, I, I think that it's easy to lose the heart of what Jesus is saying and what Jesus did in foot washing. Um, that being said, it is an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful metaphor. And I think that this act of foot washing, um, I think it creates two questions. There are two key questions that we can easily bypass. And the first question is, um, the, two questions, the first question is, will you be served by Jesus? And the second question is, will you serve like Jesus? Jesus said that in John chapter 12, he said, whoever loses his life will find it. And I was, as I was thinking about uh, Peter, as this picture kind of illustrates, you know, Jesus washing Peter's feet and Peter going, "Ah, you, you don't do that. As I was thinking about that, I was just thinking about how Jesus said, you're clean, but not all of you are clean. And I was thinking about how how many times that's been the case in my life where I had, I had, I had dirt that I needed to be, that, that, that Jesus needed to clean up that I wasn't even aware of. Yet like Peter, or, or like, uh, like, like Peter, uh, Jesus often meets as he, as he, as he tries to bring, um, uh, as he tries to serve us, and I think so many times in the last couple of years, I feel like I don't I don't know how to describe it other than I feel like God has washed my feet. He's just maybe brought some truth to me, and I just just humbled me, just showed me a place in my life where maybe I just needed to to, to let him be Lord. 
it's not that I wasn't a Christian. I just needed some sanctification. I feel like that before we can serve like Jesus, we first have to be served by Jesus. We have to let Jesus serve us so that we're in a position to be able to serve like him. Jesus will do for us what we don't need, what we don't know needs to be done. I think the second question is probably one that we we spend more time thinking about and talking about. Will you serve like Jesus? That's a that's a common that's a, that's a common um, you know I think that's a common. Uh, um, phrase or statement, and we, we, we talk about that a lot, the way that Jesus served. Um, the first thing that I was really thinking about is in this, in this foot washing service, I was thinking about the fact that Jesus said that the one who is, who is, who is ate bread, who has eaten bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And he was quoted from, quoting, quoting from Psalms. The one who's ate bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. The first thing, as we think about serving like Jesus, the first thing that, I, that really was clear to me is that we have to be prepared that the foot we wash will someday be used to kick us. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. The foot he washed was lifted up against him. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. And, and he says this right after his foot washing service. He says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. By this shall everyone know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Jesus' act of foot washing was his response to brokenness. It was his response to disciples fighting about who was going to be the greatest. It was his response to Judas' demonic plot to betray him. Jesus' act of foot washing was his response to the brokenness in his disciples. So many times in that context of brokenness, when I find myself engaging with people that are broken, I would, I would like to say that serving was the first thing that I went to, but it's often power. It's the exact opposite. Often when I find myself interfacing with brokenness, I'll show you. Let me, you know, it's, it's, it's me demonstrating that I have authority in this situation. But that's not what Jesus did. As Jesus interfaced with the brokenness in his disciples and their, their clear lack of understanding of the situation, he didn't reprimand them. He didn't rebuke them. There wasn't a display of power. There was a, disp- there was a display of humility. And I wonder, I wonder um, yeah, and it's, it's so common and as we read through the Gospels that what we find in, in Christ's kingdom is that to go up, you have to go down. And if you really want to be great, you have to serve. It's, it's, it's this upside-down way of thinking that is so foreign, and it's not, it's not the way of thinking that we often approach life with. Um, You know, I'll never forget, I probably will never forget, a time when, um, probably 15 years ago or so, um, I, I, I had a friend who was, who was struggling in his life, and, and I thought I had the answers for him, and I thought I knew what he needed. And um, I remember exactly where I was, right out here on Interstate 40, I was driving down the road, and I called him, 
uh, he, this guy had been one of my best friends. I mean, we were pretty close. Um, and I called him up and, and, and I lectured him. I just, I, I thought I had truth for him and I, I just, I beat him over the head with it. And I'll never forget on that phone call, it started out such, such, like such a great phone call. And he just completely disconnected. He just disengaged. He, it turned into a, a conversation to a monologue. It was a conversation, and, you know, then all I was getting was, hmm, hmm, yeah. You know, it was that kind of a conversation. And I wonder what would happen, what, how that conversation could have been different had I instead tried to wash his feet, had I instead tried to understand where he was at. Instead of me thinking that I had something to teach him, what if I had taken the position of a servant for my friend and not taking the position of, you know, whatever, I don't know, I got it all together and I can show you how it's done. Um, there's a whole world of people that have dirty feet that are waiting for someone to wash them. There are people that need us to show up in their brokenness and bring them restored life, bring them new life. Uh, there are people that, that need us just to listen to them, just to maybe bring them a meal, just to serve um, w- without recognition. I know one of the things DK says is, you know, if it, there are plenty of places to serve if you don't care who gets the credit. I, I believe you say that. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, that's really the case. Um, foot washing, however, is, is a lot more than just serving. And if we just leave this story of Jesus washing feet as an example of, humil- of, of humble servitude, um, I don't think we're unpacking the full truth of it. It's a leadership style. It's a way of leading people and engaging with people. Now, before you check out and you say, well, I'm not a leader, and that completely doesn't even apply to me, I think there are almost, there's probably very few people sitting right here who could say that I'm not a leader. Everyone is leading someone. You're leading your friends. You're leading your children. You're leading your spouse. You're leading your coworkers. You're leading your community. Um, in some way, we're all making an impact in leading people. Um, and, and, you know, I used to really under, downplay the impact of my leadership. And I used to think, well, I, you know, I, I'm nobody. And, and it was to my own harm that I did that and to the harm of the people around me. Um, um, the, the reality is your life is not lived in a vacuum and you will make an impact. And it's up to you whether that impact of your leadership is going to be one that has led people closer to Jesus or not. Um, and and I, I, I wonder, as I was studying this thing of, 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 of Jesus' response to brokenness and and how he engaged with the disciples, I wonder how many relationships and church splits and, and, and frustrations and how, much, how many problems of unforgiveness and bitterness, how many of those things could, could just, would, just, would just really just disappear into nowhere if we just had this attitude of a servant? Just, how can I serve you? I'm here to serve you. And, and, it's, and, and that's not something that we can do um, you know, just by... You know, figuring out, you know, some cookie cutter like this is, you know, it's, it's, it's when we put ourselves in the position of a servant, people experience us as that. When we just try to just fake it, I think people experience that as well. Um, um, in, in, in his book, Good to Great, um, 
Jim Collins looks at 11 companies and he just, you know, he has this, these things, he decides what, what a great company looks like. And um, so he, um, he examines 11 companies that have been great for 15 years. So they, what he, he, they're demonstrating these attributes that he say leads to enduring success. And I don't think it should be a great surprise to anybody that, that the number one concept that he says that it takes to lead what he considers a great company is level five leadership. And here's what he describes as a level five leader. He says it's an individual who blends extreme personal humility with intense professional will. It's a leader who channels his or her ego away from themselves and into the larger goal of building a great company. It's a leader that's comfortable with the idea that most people won't even know the roots of the success lead back to their efforts. I just thought that was, uh, that was an interesting, interesting statement from a guy who isn't a believer. He, you know, he's not a Christ follower. But as I read the book Good to Great, man, I'm like, that is exactly what Jesus was teaching. It really was. Um, and there's another great example. I think I've mentioned him before. His name is John Wooden. I am not a sports guy. I don't even know. I don't know. I just, whatever. But However, he is a sports coach, a sports, a basketball coach, and, and I've read so many things that he's written, it just, he, he kind of captivated me. And I said, you know what, as impactful as this man was 50 years ago, and we're still talking about him today and holding him up as this glowing model of success, there has to be something to it. I wonder if he was a Christian. So I just kind of Google search, you know, John Wooden faith or something, and, and like, it is all over the place. I mean, this guy starts every day with time with God and, 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 but, um, so just a quick snapshot from John Wood. He, he, he won 10 NCAA national championships in a 12 year period as the head coach for UCLA, including a record seven in a row. No other team has ever won more than four in a row. Um, within this period, his teams won NCAA, um, man, uh, men's basketball record, 88 consecutive games they won. John Wooden did not consider himself a basketball coach. He considered himself a life coach. And the impact that he made on every one of his players is unbelievable. His players went on prepared for life in ways, and and they're probably still impacting the world. His, he had 12 lessons of leadership, and it's, and it's probably no surprise that the first one is good values attract good people, and love is the most attractive or the most powerful four-letter word. John Wooden's service, his humble servanthood to his team did way more than just win basketball games. It changed the lives of his players. Jesus said in verse 17 that, that, that if we would wash each other's feet, he said, there's a blessing if we do it. He said, there, there's, if you know this and you do it, there's a blessing. And I think that it's a blessing that so many of us in, in certain times of our lives, we can, we can gloss over. The blessing of just showing up into the relationships that we're called to impact and just serving them. And just, you know, showing up to brokenness just with the attitude of a servant, with the, with the attitude of a servant. Um, one, one of my one of the guys that I really admire, his name is Buck Jacobs. Um, he has this phrase that he says that you know that that, that Jesus asked him um, that, that Jesus wants to be Jesus in his buck suit. So so he's saying that that, that Jesus wants to show up and impact the world um, 
in a suit that looks like Buck Jacobs, but it's really, it's really, it's really Jesus inside. And, and I really thought, you know, Jesus made a tremendous impact in the world in his John Wooden suit. And I really think that Jesus wants to make an impact in the world in his Luke suit too. And, you know, whoever, whoever you are, um, Jesus wants us to put on the robe that he left us, the towel, sorry, put on the towel and go out, grab some water and wash some people's feet. And what that looks like, it's really up to you. Um, you, maybe sometime you do need to scrub some dirt off people's feet. Maybe you need to scrub some toilets. I don't know, but I do believe that this lesson of leadership and this lesson of, of, um, of, of engaging with brokenness from the attitude of a servant, I think it will change people's lives.